Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. Breathe into us the abundant life that Jesus promised and his resurrection is a witness to. Hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Christ is risen. Let's try that one more time. Christ is risen. It's still Easter. We get 50 days to celebrate the resurrection. Today is the fourth Sunday in Easter, and it's the second Sunday of our new series, Life Up. As we, begin, or as we continue to wrestle with the questions of our faith, that audacious faith that we claimed on Easter morning, our faith in a resurrected Savior, we continue to wonder how this informs our lives. How exactly does resurrection faith call us to live in all the moments of our lives? Today we're going to talk more about how we could experience more abundant lives in our very closest relationships. And let's face it, it's often in our closest relationships that we're challenged the most Honestly, I think this is probably the most difficult of the three sermons that I'll preach during this series, because for me, while our most intimate relationships are often the source of our deepest healing and our greatest joy, they can also be the source of very deep grief. Our most intimate relationships, those with our parents, with our siblings, with our spouses, with our children with our best friends, they tend to ask us to confront ourselves in our most broken places. The vulnerability that we experience in our most intimate relationships is unrivaled, in my opinion. The Colossian church understood this. They understood it very well. They were formed very early in the history of the church as a community who shared faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and they lived their faith as faithfully as they could. They lived very intimately. They shared all things in common. So you better bet there were some challenges. So much so that someone eventually wrote a letter to them addressing the conflicts they were having and how they were dealing with them. Listen to this advice that was shared with them. You heard part of it when Jenny was doing the children's time. Listen to the advice shared with them in this letter to the church at Colossae. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And, <clears throat> and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God. Clothe yourselves. That's what the letter advises. Clothe yourselves, but not haphazardly. We clothe ourselves very intentionally with particular garments. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all, the letter says, clothe yourselves with love. I like the way that the Message Bible puts it. It says, regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It is your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. It's the classic little black dress that's essential to every woman's wardrobe. Only it's not just for those unexpected special occasions. It's meant to be worn every single day. Clothe yourselves. Sounds so simple. The problem is, the little black dress, as useful as it is, oftentimes, it's not very comfortable. Especially if you haven't been keeping up with your fitness training. <laughs> Wearing love takes training. It takes practice. When James and I decided to get married, his granddad gave him a little card that he still carries in his wallet. He told James that it was the secret to a good marriage. On it, it said, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> I thought that was excellent advice. It also sounds very simple. And maybe the secret to happy, life-giving relationships is simple. But I think most of us would agree that it is by no means easy. You know, I thought that I was so well prepared for marriage, because you see, I'd taken a class. It was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Yep, great school, great school. And it was a master's level class. It was called Family and Marriage. I learned a lot in that class, for sure. I learned that as a woman who had grown up with an alcoholic father and parents who had divorced each other and then their subsequent spouses as well, that the odds of me getting and staying married were slim to none. I also learned that one of the top predictors of whether or not um, a married couple would stay married had to do with their expectations of marriage beforehand. The professor said that statistically, those who got married expecting a 50-year-long Harlequin romance were much more likely to divorce when reality hit than those who went into marriage with a more realistic understanding of what marriage would be. So, <laughs> Given the odds stacked against me, I armed myself with the facts. I did not idealize my expectations. In fact, I prided myself on my very realistic understanding of marriage. And I didn't minimize the professor's advice or her warning. She said, marriage takes hard work. And while the fact that I did not expect a Harlequin romance has served me well, I really wish that I had asked that professor to be more explicit when she was describing hard work. Because the work of marriage, as I had imagined it, it looked very mature and adult. It looked like a practice of being intentional. 
you know, you set up regular date nights, you make a point to compliment one another and encourage each other. You remember to celebrate all the special occasions. You do not forget birthdays. You say thank you and I'm sorry often. And then when there are those more serious disagreements or misunderstandings, which of course I knew there would be because I had a very realistic vision of marriage, you'd come together and you'd have a very rational and adult discussion. You try to better understand each other because you know you love each other. And through all of these very civilized and loving talks, of course you would come to a mutually satisfying compromise and you'd actually grow more deeply in love as a result of this discussion. Now I realize that's probably how it is for all of y'all, <laughs> but when James and I had our first argument, it was a rude awakening. I quickly discovered that very little of the real work of marriage is intellectual at all. And it's certainly not rational. Definitely not easy. I was completely unprepared for how heartbreaking marriage can sometimes be. Heartbreaking because we are so human and humans are broken and intimate relationships, Lord God, help us all, they call us to confront our own brokenness. It's not the brokenness of my husband, it's not the brokenness of James that's the most painful or difficult for me to deal with. I was completely unprepared for the internal work that these relationships would require of me, the heart and soul work that marriage and parenting for that matter, that they take. And I had absolutely no idea that there would be such deep spiritual work involved. As it turns out, to remain in relationship long-term and experience it as life-giving, it requires transformation. And transformation can be painful. I still wonder if I could get my money back from UNC. <laughs> yeah, ain't gonna happen. Luckily for me, when I married James, I was also blessed to be in relationship with his parents. James's parents understand what it takes. It is so obvious that they love each other and that they're deeply committed to each other. And in the 18 or so years that I have known them, they have always displayed patience and kindness and generosity. They're very good-natured and faithful people. And I learned quickly that I could trust them. They embraced me as one of their own. They supported me every bit as much as they supported James. And after I'd been married to James for a couple of years and tossed all my expectations about marriage right out the window, I asked James's parents one time, the four of us were sitting in their living room, and I asked them if they had ever struggled in their marriage because they certainly make it look very easy now. And I wasn't asking them if they had endured hard times together. I wanted to know if they had ever fought. And I think the exact question that I asked them was something like, did you ever look at each other and think, I have made a huge mistake? And without any hesitation at all, thank God, they looked at each other and they said, oh yeah. 
And I knew that they were telling the truth because one of those looks passed between them, you know, one of those looks that you know they've just both gone to the exact same place. It's one of those looks that's just pregnant with years and years of shared memories. When I asked them how they'd stayed together, James's dad, Mike, he looked confused by the question. He said, well, splitting up was never an option. I said, okay, well, I get that. I understand that a lot of people from your generation would have never considered divorce as an option. And I know lots of people who stayed married just because that's what you do, but they don't look happy. Y'all seem happy. You actually act like you like each other. How did that happen? It was a really good conversation, and I can't remember everything that they told me, everything that they said, but I remember that at the end of that conversation, I was so relieved. I was relieved because it gave me hope. It gave me hope that with time and commitment, even a marriage that struggled with conflict could grow into one that was happy and peaceful. It gave me hope because Mike and Julie were not only a couple that had managed somehow to stay married for a long time, but who obviously, despite the fact that they had experienced heartbreak and deep grief in their relationship with one another, they had grown in love and respect for each other. They had, despite having their fair share of conflict, become the closest of friends. It gave me hope because despite what Harlequin romance and Lifetime specials would have you believe, <laughs> true love and authentic relationship is not without conflict. Sometimes shattering conflict. In fact, it seemed like, based on Mike and Julie's account, that the sort of easy friendship and deep commitment that I saw between the two of them, the marriage that I hoped to have one day seemed to me like it was born in conflict. The Colossians also had their fair share of conflict. They were conflicted about how to understand their faith. They were conflicted about how to understand who Jesus was and what exactly was meant or expected by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Much like our wonderings, during this season about resurrection. They were wrestling. So the letter to the Colossians shares thoughts on, among other things, how to relate to one another when conflict happens. If you read the letter to the Colossians, it is obvious the assumption in the letter and the assumption that Mike and Julie had learned and that I found hope in was that in relationships, especially our closest, most intimate relationships, conflict is a given. So the question addressed by the letter to the Colossians was not, do y'all fight? It was, how do you fight? The Colossians needed to know how to respond to one another, not if, but when, bare-knuckled emotional brawls broke out, when expectations went unmet, when there was heartbreak, when hopes and dreams were shattered. Clothe yourselves, the letter advises. But not with any old, crumpled up, wrinkled garment you find thrown in the corner. Clothe yourselves with intentionality. As Christians, we put on very particular clothes. It does take thought, takes effort. It takes faith in a resurrected Savior 
faith that transformed life is possible and that it is always born in death. And I say always born in death. I stand by that because all transformation, anytime we would have changed minds or hearts or attitudes, changed relationships, transformed lives, it requires that we allow to die all those things that stand in the way of abundant life. It requires death of unhelpful and unhealthy ideas and habits and beliefs. I also say death because broken relationships oftentimes feel like death. Death of our hopes and dreams, death of our imagined future, death of our own sense of identity. Who we understand ourselves to be is so bound up in the relationships that we have. I don't know who I would be if I wasn't James's wife, if I wasn't Michaela and Zay's mom, if I wasn't your pastor. Those are significant relationships in my life, and they help define how I understand who I am. Oftentimes in the early days of relationship, we're most fragile or most vulnerable. We certainly are in the early days of conversion. The church in Colossae was new, and the believers were young to the faith. I mean, at that point in time, the faith itself was very young. So the letter encouraged them as new believers to take off their old selves like an old and useless suit of clothes and to put on instead Christ. In the early church, when people were baptized, they literally stripped away all their old clothes before they entered the baptismal pool. And then once they emerged, they were clothed in a whole new set of garments, usually very bright white garments, to symbolize this whole new way of being, to symbolize life that had been transformed utterly by Christ. And marriage, from a Christian perspective, is a sacred covenant that's meant to reflect our baptismal covenant. When others witness a Christian marriage, and I'd argue, when others witness any Christian in relationship, the hope is that they would see lives that have been transformed by the love and peace of Christ. That they would witness a unique way of being in relationship with one another that privileges, above all else, grace. Roy and Jackie Trueblood wrote a book called Partners in Ministry, and in it, they present a very helpful tool that we can use to help reflect love in our relationships. It's called the HEART Principles. HEART is an acronym that helps us remember what each of the principles says. It goes like this. The first one is hear and understand me. We're, we're supposed to listen to each other. We're supposed to listen attentively to one another and then reflect back what you think you heard to make sure you understood each other correctly. Second, even if you disagree, please don't make me wrong. Not easy. We live in a competitive culture. We like to win. Unfortunately, winning an argument is not always the best thing for a relationship. Maybe you've heard the saying, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? 
I've also heard it said, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? It is possible, although it takes effort and creativity, it is possible to disagree with the thoughts or ideas of another person and at the same time affirm that person. The next one is acknowledge the greatness within me. That sounds a little lofty, but you know, we all have greatness in us. We are created by God, inhabited by the image of God. There's absolutely greatness that dwells within us and we are called by our baptismal vows to nurture and affirm all that is within us. Next, remember to look for my loving intentions. I don't know about y'all, but when I'm in the heat of an argument, especially if I have somehow been hurt, it is very easy for me to assume the worst of another person. But as those who are clothed in love, we are called to, intentional, to intentionally look for or assume the best instead. And if we're able to do that, when we're able to assume the best in another's intentions, it's a lot harder for us to demonize or alienate the person we're disagreeing with. And we're much less likely to do harm ourselves. Tell me the truth with compassion. I think that's the hardest one to practice. For me, it feels a whole lot easier oftentimes to just withhold the truth. I want to avoid confrontation. If you do happen to master up the courage to speak the truth, it's also true that it can be very uncomfortable. I mean, it's hard, at least for me sometimes, to figure out how to say something, how to say something that is true, clearly, and at the same time avoid that emotional charge or figure out how to navigate if the other person gets defensive or angry. Still, it's work that we're called to do as Christians. When you came in, you received one of these cards. If you didn't get one, make sure you get one on your way out. Or the, you can raise your hand and the ushers will bring you one if you didn't get one of these cards. On one side of the little card, it has the heart principles as a reminder. And on the other side, it has one of the verses from our centering scripture today. The hope is that you'll carry those with you, you'll keep them handy, and that between the two, you will be better equipped to remain engaged even when it's really hard or painful in those important relationships so that they can be transformed by the love of Christ, bearing even deeper intimacy, even in the midst of conflict. The hope is that we will begin to see in our own relationships what I see in Mike and Julie. And don't get me wrong, they are not perfect. I've certainly seen them with must hair and in crumpled, wrinkled clothes. I've seen Julie with no makeup on. I've seen Mike sweaty and gross. And they're not always saints. But I do always see Christ calling them back to love in all of their interactions. Theirs is a relationship that does what a Christian relationship is meant to do. It witnesses to the power and the hope that the love and forgiveness of God promises all of us. There is a relationship, theirs is a relationship that truly has been transformed by their faith in a risen Savior. 
Faith expressed and practiced by clothing themselves with love. Clothing themselves with love that it doesn't always hang just right. It's not always comfortable. Forgiveness that is so ill-fitting at times, you have to lay down on the bed and suck in your gut to get it buttoned up. Humility that itches so bad some days that you can barely stand it. And patience that is wrinkled and worn through. But that's what Mike and Julie have done. It's what we're called to do. We're called to suit up over and over and over again until finally, after years and years of practice apparently, you begin to wear Christ like a second skin. Clothe yourselves in the love of our resurrected Savior, the one who promises abundant life. And together, in authentic relationship, I believe that we can all take life up a notch. Amen.